0: Greetings. This is Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class, and it's time again for the gospel to come to life. This podcast that I produce on a weekly basis offers me an opportunity to share with you unique insights into the gospel passage that will be the central theme of preaching in our Catholic Christian communities of faith this coming weekend. I draw on my extensive background in biblical studies that focus attention on particular aspects of the gospel that are gleaned from the culture and the common life of people who lived in the Middle East in the time of Jesus. And so often these kinds of insights allow the gospel to be something that is breathed into life in a new way. A new insight is gleaned and we can apply then these insights into our lives. I'm a teacher and our priests and deacons are preachers. And so, my goal is to assist them and you in your preparation for hearing the gospel so that you're ready to hear it preached into your life. Today, as I sit before you, I'm going to draw your attention to Matthew and the 10th chapter and a collection of four sayings of Jesus that begin in verse 26 and will conclude in verse 33. I say a collection of sayings because quite often in the Gospels we have thematic sayings of Jesus collected and put before us in chapter and verse form that didn't necessarily flow right one after the other. I'll give you a great example of that. If you'll remember the parables of Luke chapter 15, the key to that chapter, of course, is the parable of the prodigal Father who has two sons loses both of them, waits for the return of each, and welcomes each home as a result. Parables are stories that are drawn from life and time, custom and tradition of the world of Jesus that have a shock element to them and always leave the listener in doubt as to their precise meaning or their precise application. Well, Matthew has a collection of sayings here, much like Luke has a collection of parables in Luke chapter 15. You'll remember that Luke chapter 15 opens with the parable of a man who has a hundred sheep, loses one, and goes out risking his life in search for that lost animal. That parable is followed by a second. It's the parable of a woman who has a beautiful necklace that contains ten very valuable coins, each part of her marital dowry. She loses one coin, searches diligently until she finds it, and then replaces it in the necklace, rejoicing with every and all in the village over her success. And then we have the parable of the prodigal father, as I mentioned, with two sons, both wayward, one with the law, the older son, one without the law, the younger son, and yet both are asked to return to the father. The younger son is received and restored. and We're left in doubt about the possibility of the older son's return to his father's good graces. That's a decision that the older son has to make. Well, when we read Luke chapter 15, we are often sort of tempted to imagine that Jesus shared these three parables in rapid succession. One followed by another, and then by a third. Sort of like the idea of Jesus saying, did you get that? No? Well, let me try again. You you got it now, right? Oh, you didn't? Well, let me give you a third example. That's not at all the case. Jesus is the originator of all three parables, as Jesus is obviously the person who speaks in these four declarative statements in our gospel for this coming week. But we don't have to believe for a moment that he spoke the three parables one after the other. It's simply a collection of parables that Jesus spoke that have a common theme of something valuable, being lost, searched for diligently, until found. And so Luke collects those three parables in Luke chapter 15 of things lost and found, and they make up the chapter in that gospel account. The same is true here with the gospel of Matthew. That explains why the four declarative statements don't have a common theme. And it's why, by the way, this gospel is very difficult to preach, right? Because there's not a unifying theme. There's not a unifying story, but rather a collection of sayings. And if I was preaching, I'd pick one of them and focus on that particular saying and allow the other three then uh, opportunity to be preached on at another time. We have the advantage of this half hour so that we can look at these sayings of Jesus in greater detail. So again, it's not as if Jesus said, let me say this and then this. Oh, and by the way, and then this. And just for good measure, my final statement is to you. But rather, these are sayings of Jesus that were spoken by our Lord at different times, But Matthew has collected them and placed them here in the gospel. And there will be others, as we'll see next week. Don't miss next week's podcast. It is fantastic. I haven't even delivered it yet, but I know the material so very well. And you will be blessed by taking the time to engage with me these gospel accounts. So let's look at Matthew's 10th chapter. We're going to put in at the opening of the gospel, which is... In verse 26, the first of the four sayings, here it is. Therefore, do not be afraid of them. Of whom? Religious leaders, right? Who have risen up and displayed intent to harm Jesus. Don't be afraid of them when they say, cease and desist, you must be silent, your voices can no longer be heard. Do not be afraid of them. Nothing, Jesus says, is concealed that will not be revealed, nor secret, that will not be known. Because what I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. In the darkness, meaning under the cloak of nightfall, when we are apart from the large crowds, and there's an opportunity for me to teach you more directly. What you hear whispered, that is, in the upper room, in another translation, you are to proclaim on the housetop let's pause here and let's unpack this saying of Jesus. First of all, you need to become familiar with the technology of getting the word out in the Middle East. I've called it the technology of the Middle Eastern secret, and it's antithetical to our understanding of a secret. A secret for you and I from a Western perspective is something we keep to ourselves or only share with those most intimate in our association. So if my friend says something to me about a situation in his family and says, keep it a secret, it's perfectly appropriate for me to share that information with my wife, but not with my neighbor. That's our Western understanding of secret. And there's nothing wrong with that. We understand it and we act accordingly. But in the Middle East, there's a different way of getting the word out. The idea is that what I know, I'm going to share with you because I consider you an honorable person and, and you should know this information, but shh, don't tell anyone. Well, that's the clue. As soon as you hear shh, don't tell anyone, the underlying message is, of course, you're going to share it with another, who will share it with another, who will share it with another, but always in secret. So, anything that's hidden is always intended to be revealed. Secrets are meant to be known in the Middle East. Now this opens up an insight into the gospel account where Jesus will heal someone in a very public manner and say, don't tell anyone. And they go out and they begin to proclaim what Jesus has done for them. It's assumed that that's what Jesus wants them to do. It's not our Culture. It's the culture of the Middle East. So, again, in verse 27, what I say to you in the darkness, really because you're afraid of the light? No, remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3 comes to Jesus at night, not because he's a coward, right? He's given an audience with Jesus at night because Jesus isn't surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of people as he would have been on a daily basis when he taught in the public area of the Temple Mount. And there'd be no possibility of having an engaged conversation during the daylight hours, but at night, you can come, granted opportunity to do so, and engage Jesus, as we saw in John chapter 3, in the story of Nicodemus, one theologian to another. And so again, Jesus has these times of intimacy with his disciples, who are his students, and he teaches them at night right? Before they go to bed, after their evening meal, so that that's where they learn about the kingdom of God. And you then are going to speak what you hear in the darkness, in the light. That's the whole point. Get the word up. Again, the gospel began. Do not be afraid of them, those religious leaders, who would want to silence Jesus and those who follow him. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Whisper. Well, think about Teaching at night in a home, a home which facilitates sleeping arrangements for an entire family the elders, the grandparents, the parents, the children, the grandchildren. Again, you can't speak with raised voices necessarily in that kind of setting, so you would whisper in the upper rooms, right? When you're gathered around with low tones, but the message that Jesus is presenting them, the teaching about the kingdom of God is meant, the next day, with the sun's rising, to be proclaimed from the housetops. All right, that's the first of our four sayings, right? Collected here, not necessarily spoken one after another. Now, what would be, then, the reason of Matthew to connect this second saying to this section of the gospel? Well, the gospel opened with, Therefore, do not be afraid of them. Religious leaders who have a desire to see the message and the work of Jesus silenced and stopped. So again, in verse 28, at a different time, Jesus had also said, and do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. That is, you have been, well, threatened with bodily harm. You have been threatened with extinction, right? You've been threatened with death. Don't be afraid of those who can kill you but cannot kill the soul, that is the nephesh, that life breath of God within you. Rather, be afraid or hold in awe the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Where's Gehenna? Well, Gehenna is logistically located just outside the southern gate of the old city of Jerusalem. It is a valley that was called the Valley of Gehenna Uh, And as a result of the refuse of the city being piled there and burned there, because the southern part of the city is much lower than the northern part of the city, and gravity then uh, moved all refuse and, and human waste products into that valley, you needed a constant source of flame to suppress the smells. And of course, that would be the burning dump area, the trash heaps that would be consistently aglow with flame in order to consume refuse. And this became then, for Jesus, an obvious image of what hell would be like. A place that was filled with refuse, that smelled horribly, that was always burning and where agents of destruction sort of coursed their way through the material. It's not literally hell, but it's an image evoked by Jesus. And there wouldn't be a person alive listening to those words of Jesus that wouldn't be acutely aware of the geographic location that he is speaking of. Now, today, travel with me, if you desire, to Israel. We'll be going in October. If you need more information about that trip in 2020, you can go to the ArizonaBibleClass.com website and follow the travel opportunity prompts and find out all the details. The brochure is available. You can register. And when we travel to Israel, we will make our way through the southern gates into the city of Jerusalem in order to visit the Western Wall. That southern gate in the time of Jesus was called the Dung Gate, D-U-N-G. And again, it was called the Dung Gate because it was through that gate that all human and animal refuse, right, coursed through into the valley called Gehenna. When we drive along that route through the valley of Gehenna, we note today it's a beautifully, opulently green, lush public park. But the atrocities that were uh, held there and the uh, dump and the fire and the smell that are remembered in the biblical period are only that now, just memories. So Jesus is saying, Again, don't be afraid of those who have threatened to take your life. But uh, they won't do that. And even if they could, they could not kill the soul. Rather, be afraid or be in awe of the one God who can destroy both the soul and the body in Gehenna. And then our third statement. I think you find this one quite fascinating. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a small coin. In fact, the smallest of the coins available in the time of Jesus, worth, as estimated, about one one one-hundredth of a day's wage. So a denarius was considered the average day's wage for a day's work, and this particular smallest of the coin, the widow's mite, if you will, was worth one one one-hundredth of that. And you could use that small coin to buy two Sparrows. And that's why Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for the smallest of a coin? Again, you don't see a connection to the first or the second statement, and you're not meant to. This is a saying of Jesus independent of this particular sort of sermon in Matthew chapter 10. So are not two sparrows sold for a small coin, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. I want to pause here and take you to Luke chapter 12 because Luke chapter 12 remembers another saying of Jesus, which is very similar to this as well. In Luke chapter 12, in verse 6, Jesus is remembered to have said, in addition to what I just read to you, at another time using the same imagery, are not five sparrows sold for two small coins, Yet not one of them has escaped the notice of God. In Luke chapter 12, verse 6, five sparrows for two coins. In Luke chapter 6, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 10, we have two sparrows for a single small coin. That means that there was a discount. If you bought four, you got a fifth. A sparrow doesn't provide much meat on the bone, and yet they were raised for the purpose of feeding the poorest of the poor. So if Jesus is speaking in this particular situation and says, are not two sparrows sold for a small coin, or as we saw in the Gospel of Luke, are not four for two small coins sold and then a fifth added in, we know he's speaking to people of very meager means. Sparrows were the food of the poor. And I did a bit of research and found out that even in our modern time in Cambodia, for instance, in Phnom Penh, there are uh, those who raise sparrows. And it's a treat in the afternoon to have two sparrows and a glass of beer. I, I, I looked deeper into the preparation techniques. I can't really sleuth that out in the time of Jesus. But suffice it to say, even the hardiest sparrow wouldn't provide much food sustenance. And yet they were all available for that purpose and were raised in sort of areas that would provide then this source of meat. So again, are not two sparrows sold for a small coin? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. Again, he's speaking to the poorest of the poor. Even all the hairs of your head, he said, are counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And again, the sparrows were ever present, everywhere, and were so inexpensive. And yet, God cares for all of them. By the way, again, a little research revealed that the average head of hair on a male has about a hundred thousand strands. It really sort of meaningless, but the point is, God knows everything and cares about even the smallest details of our lives. Even all the hairs of your head are counted. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I think that's the theme again. Don't be afraid. Because again, the section of Matthew's gospel opened with those words. Therefore, don't be afraid of them. And to remind you of who they were, Walking into the gospel in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you like sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as shrewd as serpents and as simple or as uh, uh, simple as doves. A better word than simple, gentle as doves. But beware of people, some who are opposed to you, for they will hand you over to courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be led before governors and kings for my sake, as a witness before them and the pagans. When they hand you over, meaning those bent on persecuting you because you are my followers, think of Saul of Tarsus in Luke's Acts chapter 8. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say. You will be given at that moment what to say. For it will not be you who is speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You see, there'll come a time when brother will hand over brother to death, which cannot be imagined in the Middle Eastern world of the biblical narrative. And the father will hand over his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. There is no more far-reaching possibility than that statement. That can't happen. In the Middle East. And yet Jesus says it will. There will be division. You'll know More about that next week. Because of me. And you will be, in verse 22. Hated by all. Hated. You will be detached from everyone. They will detach themselves from you. Hate means to detach. By all. Because of my name. But whoever endures to the end. Will be saved. But when they persecute you. In one town, don't stay around, flee to another. Amen, I say to you, you will not finish the towns of Israel before the Son of Man is revealed. Before he comes, and he comes as promised when the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. That's when the Son of Man is revealed, a predictive prophecy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 that will take place within 40 years of his uttering. The words, what? One stone will be left upon another. That will be the end. The end of, we'll call it, biblical Judaism or temple-centric Judaism comes in 70 AD with the destruction of that temple. Jesus goes on to say, no disciples above his teacher, no slave above his master. It's going to happen to me. And so you can expect it will happen to you. It is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher or the slave that he becomes like his master. And if they've called the master of the house, and this has happened just before Jesus teaches the gospel for this coming week, Beelzebul, how much more will he call those of his household? Beelzebul is the Lord of the flies, and they claim that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of of demons. So these predictions of Jesus about persecution and persecutorial energies at the hands of religious leaders are well attested. And it's part of the lived experience of the disciples during the life of Jesus, much more so after his suffering death, burial, and resurrection, as persecution begins to amp up as quickly as 50 days after the resurrection and the Feast of Pentecost, right, and we have the appearance then of Saul of Tarsus, he among others who breathe murderous threats against the church in Acts chapter seven, Stephen, the first official designated martyr for the faith, in Acts chapter twelve, James, the youngest I'm sorry, the first of the twelve apostles to be put to death, dies as a martyr, the brother of the youngest apostle, John, so again, coming back to our gospel, chapter ten verse. 31. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And then we have our fourth and final statement for the gospel of this coming week. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my heavenly Father. If you stand and proclaim your loyalty to me, then I will stand and proclaim you before my father. Jesus will be our advocate. He will plead our case. I'm fond of uh, teaching that you only need to know three words when you are preparing to enter into heaven's embrace. I say it facetiously, but imagine the scene. You stand there next to the Lord, and he, of course, stands next to his father, and all you need to say is, I'm with him. If you are, you're in. That's the idea of this teaching. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Heavenly Father. But whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my Heavenly Father as well. So, be strong. Stay the course. I'm going to draw your attention yet again to Luke chapter 12. Because again, Luke chapter 12 tells the same Story from a different perspective. And in Luke chapter 12, as I read to you earlier from that chapter in verse 6, remember, are not five sparrows sold for two small coins? We realize the fifth sparrow was thrown in for free, and the sparrow is a meat source for the poorest of the poor, which would have been basically uh, the vast number of people who would have been listening to the teaching of. Jesus. And then he goes on to say in Luke chapter 12, yet not one of them has escaped the notice of God. And again, even the hairs of your head have all been counted. Do not be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. And then he says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. Jesus speaks self-referentially as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a messianic title. And the reason I focus on that is because it's so important to embrace this understanding. Many biblical scholars and well-intentioned all have often wondered if Jesus knew of his divinity. You'll hear this or you'll read this uh, in regard to some theological musings about this issue. Uh, Jesus of history, versus the Christ faith, that the Jesus of history was a man blessed by God with great gift, talent, and ability, and the Christ faith was the creation of the early church. And The reason that some misguided biblical scholars come to this conclusion, and I think uh, with good intent, is that they don't see clearly where Jesus states with a categorical certainty that he believes himself to be the Messiah. Okay, granted, John the Baptist will say, well, there's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world in John chapter 1. And we, we, we know that they relate to Jesus as a great miracle worker and healing, but they don't see clearly where Jesus claims divine status. We see that in that 12th chapter, the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus, as he does in many other places in the Synoptic Gospel, refers to himself as the Son of Man. We, we've been to this passage before in Daniel chapter 7. It's unbelievably important to control this teaching. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, a series of visions, has yet another. In Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13, 14, and 15, this vision changes. Everything we know about the Messiah. And Jesus leans into this passage when he appropriates for himself the messianic title, the Son of Man. And Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, as the visions of the night continued, I saw coming with the clouds of heaven, someone riding a cloud into heaven's throne room. Remember, there's an understanding of conveyance, and the clouds, apocalyptic literature, are that conveyance into heaven, because clouds move across the sky and disappear. It's easy to imagine. They're heading into heaven. Now, on one of those clouds, one like a son of man, lowercase, a male figure, appeared. And when he reached the Ancient of Days, that's God, obviously, and was presented before him, he, meaning that son of man, received dominion, splendor and kingship. All nations, peoples, and tongues will serve him. And Daniel says in the vision, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship, one that shall never be destroyed. An everlasting dominion, a kingship that will never be destroyed. An eternal kingdom. And it was at that point, 600 years or so before Jesus, that the census fidelum among the Jewish faith community began to grow and develop to maintain that one day when Messiah would come, he would identify himself as the son of man of Daniel chapter seven, who would bring in and usher a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So in Luke chapter 12, when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, it's a claim clearly to his, identification of himself as co-eternal with the Father and as the Messiah. You can't get more clear. All right. So that brings us to the end of our gospel account, right? Four sayings loosely knit together. The result of sayings uh, having to do with the threat of persecution and then our response. We don't have to believe for a moment that they were spoken by Jesus one rapidly after the other. Did you get that? Okay, how about this? Uh, Again, a third try, maybe a fourth? No, but in the course of his public ministry, these statements were spoken by Jesus. They were remembered and they were collected here, much like the three parables of those items, lost sheep, coin, sons, and found are collected in Luke chapter 15. So that's all the time I have for this reflection this week. I want to thank you for taking time to listen and I want to remind you that you should never forget what a great student you are. If you need to contact me, you can contact me through an email address, gospelcomestolife at gmail.com. Until next week, Zen, good day, and God bless.